is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. Very pleased to be joined today by Daniel DiMartino. He is a Venezuelan freedom activist and economist. He is currently a PhD candidate in economics at Columbia University. Daniel, someone I found really brings sharp analysis, uh, largely due, or not largely due, but also due uh, to being born and raised in Venezuela, and someone who I think has a much needed and rare perspective on politics and, and economics. So Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank, thanks so much for having me, Ashton. Appreciate it. So I want to start off with, uh, give us a background for, for the viewers and listeners, where your family comes from, and then being how it was like to be born and raised in Venezuela particularly during the uh, the Chavez-Maduro regime? Yeah, well, my uh, my grandparents from my dad's side um, originally came from Italy in the 1950s to Venezuela. And from my mom's side, they, they went from Spain. Uh, Venezuela received... Uh, hundreds of thousands, over, over a million actually immigrants in, in within a few years, back in the 50s uh, after World War II, uh, as people were seeking a, a very prosperous place and Venezuela was the fourth richest country in the planet. So Venezuela received people from all over Europe, from Latin America, from the Middle East, uh, even people from the United States came to Venezuela and lived there. And, and Venezuela was truly the American dream in South America. And, um, but those things changed gradually. And, and so the, the life that my grandparents and my parents lived when they were younger was very much different by the time I was born because I was born on the same year that Hugo Chavez took office. Um, that is 1999, I'm 22 years old. And Chavez uh, changed the country, right? Uh, Venezuela was already not the, not the fourth richest country on the planet by the 90s when, when he got elected, but Venezuela was an average line American, was an average country freedom-wise, was much richer than the rest of Latin America. Uh, and it was a good place to live, you know, with problems, with crime, with corruption, like every Latin American country, but where people weren't starving to death and where poor people had a chance to make it at life. And, and those things changed when Chavez took over businesses, when Chavez spent so much money on welfare programs that made our currency worthless by printing money that I couldn't even fit enough cash in my wallet to buy things. Uh, how he regulated businesses with price controls and currency controls that created shortages of everything you can imagine, making us line up for hours, rationing food. It made life impossible. It made what was a rich country, a normal country into a hell. Um, it, it is a textbook case of bad economic policy, of socialism, right? Because it is government takeover of, of the economy. And, and that's why I decided that I, that I wanted to live in freedom, that I wanted to, to come to the United States. Uh, I came to America almost six years ago, five and a half years ago. Um, I got a full ride to study in Indiana, finished my college degree in economics there, uh, then lived in Kentucky for a little bit. And now I'm doing a PhD in economics at Columbia in New York City. Amazing. So, with respect, so Venezuela went from fourth richest economy in the world in the fifties and sixties, 
which is unbelievable. That means it's wealthier than basically every European country. Uh, obviously, part of that due to the rebuilding after the war, but still unbelievable feat, uh, particularly did not have a huge population. And by prior to Chavez taking over, what, what do you think were the ingredients that someone like, um, that made someone like Chavez popular to begin with, that he was able to, to uh, take over the society? Was, was Venezuela already flirting with sort of socialist ideas? Yes, yes, it was. Uh, in fact, I mean, during the, the decades that uh, uh, preceded Chavez, the Venezuelan government had already implemented some price controls. The Venezuelan government uh, already suffered from, from higher inflation after the 70s. Oil was nationalized in the 70s in Venezuela. Oh, wow. okay. uh, it wasn't Chavez who nationalized the oil industry. He nationalized everything else, mm -hmm. uh, but oil was already nationalized and it was the biggest industry in the country, right? This is an oil producing nation. And in fact, if you look up the data of what happened after nationalization, oil production was, was totally obliterated. Um, uh, it went down from 3 million barrels uh, per, per day to, to about 1 million barrels per day in the following decades after nationalization. Wow. Uh, then in the 90s, by the time that the International Monetary Fund had to come rescue Venezuela from overspending, from a financial crisis, they recommended free market policies Policies were working, inflation went down, unemployment went down, but that was too late. It was already the, the, the year of the election. Chavez got elected in late 1998. Um, and by the time he got, and after he got elected, he solidified um, his socialist policies that we were already making a turn against, right? We had reprivatized all these industries. We had uh, allowed private investment in the oil industry and production had gone up. Things were improving. Um, but I think that the, the conditions were already there, which, is, which were bad economic, uh, a bad economic situation. If people can you know, bring food to their tables, if people know that their children are going to be better off than they are, uh, they have jobs that are fulfilling lives, there's no reason to support socialism, right? There's mm -hmm. no reason to support an overthrowing of the economic system. Those things only happen when people are, are in bad economic situations, and that's also a fault of the establishment. Mm -hmm. So Venezuela has what the largest oil reserves in the world, or a second? Is that right? The largest. Okay, so you look at a place like Dubai and UAE and Qatar, uh, all filthy rich countries. Venezuela is now one of the poorest countries in the world. Walk us through the sort of dissension into chaos and hyperinflation so chavez takes over basically what the uh it's like the bill clinton administration and his acolyte maduro is still in power so we're that's almost my entire lifetime that's older than you um walk us through how, how it started what what did he promise the people what what were his what did he run on yeah he ran on uh number one redistribution of of the wealth of resources uh, he thought that uh, oil resources weren't reaching the, the poor population and that if he were in power, he would use the oil resources to pay money to the poor population um, and give away things for free. Uh, he claimed that he was not a socialist, actually. He claimed that he would not take over businesses, uh, which was a lie. And everybody knew it was a lie if you were a smart person. Why? Because he was a friend with Fidel Castro. And you don't trust people who are friends with uh, totalitarian regimes. Right. Uh, you don't trust people who support the same policies and then they claim that they're not going to do the same, which is something that we see very often here in the United States too. And uh, 
you know, that, that's, those were the things he promised. He promised to overthrow the establishment, right? Because we had corrupt politicians in Venezuela. It was a bipartisan system. And Chavez came with a third party and, and, and overthrew everybody. Um, and, and that's how he won. Um, it was a very sad, you know, all, all of this was also fault of the politicians before him because the truth is that this is something many people outside Venezuela don't know. Chavez had attempted a coup in 1992. Hmm, eight, uh, six years before he ran for president. And he failed. He was in the military, Chavez. He was a, a military uh, lieutenant, I believe. And he, he tried a coup. He led the coup. He was imprisoned. And then the president that preceded Chavez pardoned him out of prison. If he had never been pardoned, Chavez would have stayed in jail for the rest of his life. He would have never been president. And Venezuela wouldn't be in the situation it is. And imagine how bad things were that a, a high portion of the population voted for a murder, a, a, a coup uh, attempt. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what happened. And he won. And, an insurrectionist. Uh, like an insurrectionist, right? right? Yeah. A, a real insurrectionist. Right, a real insurrectionist. Took up yeah. arms, tanks, uh, planes through the cities. There, there were bombings in Venezuela mm -hmm. in 1992. This was a, a, a coup attempt. And... Uh, it's a shame, right? Uh, and so after he took power, the first thing he attempted to do was to change the constitution. Um, Venezuela had a constitution that allowed for amendments, of course, like every constitution, mm -hmm. but uh, it doesn't allow to completely rewrite the constitution, right? You have to amend, you have to pass through Congress, you have to you know, do the, the regular process. Um, Chavez argued, and the Supreme Court, the weak Supreme Court that, uh, well, I mean, first the Supreme Court was weak, then Chavez changed the people in the Supreme Court mm -hmm. who agreed with him. And then they said, well, because the constitution starts with the words, I'm, I'm gonna just say the equivalent so Americans understand this, we the people, it means we the people can just totally rewrite it regardless of the amendment process. Mm -hmm. And so the Supreme Court allowed Chavez to elect an assembly. Uh, this is out of nowhere. This is totally out of uh, judicial interpretation uh, to rewrite a, to write a new constitution and put it up to a national vote without Congress, without an amendment process. Almost creating a new branch of government. That's right. And that's what he did. And that's what exactly happened. Uh, the new constitution allowed him to run for re-election, which was not allowed before. Oh, really? Uh, so there's only one, how, how long were the terms? Before? The terms before Chavez were five years. You couldn't run for immediate re-election. You, hmm. you had to wait a term and then run again. Uh, after Chavez, it was uh, six years, and you could allow for re-election. Um, later, he modified it so that it was not just one re-election, but in as, as many as you wanted. Right, right. Of six-year terms. And um, that's one of the things he did. He took away power away from the legislative. He eliminated the Senate and just had one chamber of Congress. Um, wow. He allowed the president to have much more power over Supreme Court appointments. So he eliminated. Uh, sorry, he eliminated the, the Senate. The Senate was, I, I assume, giving him some pushback. Was it more of a in, in the United States? It's a, it's you know, the principal deliberative body, right? It's it's the right. place where a lot of things come to die because you have to really, you know, uh, work things out in the Senate. Um, harder to get things through, and you have filibuster. Was that kind of the same situation where he was facing a bit too much opposition? So just eliminate the entire branch of government. Well, in part, uh, in part, it's just easier to legislate a past things if you just have to pass it through one chamber. Right. Okay. And it's faster to change the country. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the good things of having two chambers in, in a legislative body is that it slows the legislative process. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a good thing because right. you don't want change to happen too fast. Uh, and Chavez, and of course, that was an obstacle to Chavez. 
Uh, he, of course, named the whole election board that regulated elections nationally. There was no such thing as, you know, here in the United States, states manage the elections. States manage most of the roads. States mm-hmm. manage the police, uh, you know, trash collection. Most of the things we interact with daily, it's really right. the state's jobs. Um, they federalize that, everything. Venezuela was a federal country, too, uh, until Chavez changed it all. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the police was not a state police or a municipal police. It was, a na- it was the National Guard that is now on the streets of Venezuela. Hmm. Uh, and it is directed by the executive branch. Um, this it, seems it very totally, familiar. It, it is totally different. It is totally mm-hmm. different. And, and, and it is a, a shame. So Well, the goals are that- familiar, though, right? I mean, uh, quick interjection. The, the goals are kind of familiar. I think there's, there's a uh, party in the United States who wants to have federal oversight over a lot of things. They want to take away states' powers to regulate elections. They 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 have satellite offices. They're pushing for for the Capitol Police, right? Yes. Uh, well, you're. I mean, you're right. HR one would federalize elections, and I don't think that that would be correct. Uh, you you know, there's a reason why we have division of powers, and it is to stop people like Chavez from from <laughs> doing right. what he did. Uh, and I think it is naive to think that even good people can manage big things correctly. Uh, the division of powers works because uh, we are corruptible uh, as human beings. If you're in a situation where a person you love needs your help and you can help them, you will help them if it's an emergency, right? Uh, and But you can only do that if you have the power to change the system. And that's why we have divisions of power. So I'm trying to put uh, the situation even on a good person, right? That maybe doesn't right. have bad intentions. But you know what? Most people also have intentions that aren't good. Or maybe even the good intentions you have aren't necessarily the good policies we need. So we cannot concentrate power. And so uh, Chavez concentrated power in the presidency. Uh, you can see videos of him walking even on the street, and he would take away people's businesses and properties by hand without any judge, without any approval. Uh, he would walk down the streets of Caracas. Oh, that's a jewelry store? Expropriated. Hmm. That's uh, so, you know, eminent domain at the hands right. of the president. And and under under what justification that they were gouging customers, according to him, is that well he could really use anything. They even threatened people. Uh, it's it's disgusting and, and and horrible the things that you see on video. You see how government officials would go into your business and they would ask you for something, and if you didn't give them a paper or something like, uh, remember if you don't treat me well, we can just take over your business if you don't want mm-hmm. it, you know. And, and, and they would blackmail people like that to all or to all their lives, right? Because people's businesses mm-hmm. are their lives. Right. Um, uh, it, 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 it's heartbreaking. Absolutely. Um, would it be fair to say Chavez, I'm assuming he didn't run based on becoming the, the reincarnate of Fidel Castro. Would it be fair to say he ran as a social democrat? Yes, in the first time. After that, uh, not only the reincarnation of Fidel Castro, but he painted pictures of Fidel Castro all over mm-hmm. the all over the country, actually. Uh, and he came, Fidel Castro came to Venezuela many, many, many times. Now, uh, were, were the people in Venezuela promised Cuba, or were they promised Scandinavia? Uh, they weren't promised either, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just promised the redistribution of resources. Nobody really talked oh. about Scandinavia in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Um, we, they wanted to avoid saying Cuba, right? Nobody mm-hmm. promised Cuba because the Venezuelan people knew Cuba was a dictatorship. Cuba actually, Ashton, wanted to invade Venezuela in the 60s. Uh, you should look this up, but the reason, the original reason Cuba was expelled from the Organization of American States wasn't because Fidel Castro took over or because America wanted them out. It was because Venezuela wanted 
Cuba out of the Organization of American States because they sent a flotilla to invade the coast of Venezuela and they were repelled in the 60s. Hmm. Um, and, and, and this is the, the thing. Cuba has always had this strategy of uh, using foreign countries uh, as resource producers for them because mm-hmm. the socialist economies are parasites. Right. Um, they they don't, they don't produce anything they mm-hmm. need to extract from other places. And Venezuela had oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Venezuela was the perfect country to rescue Cuba after what the Cubans had, what that was called the special period in the 90s. Uh, you see, Cuba was sustained by the Soviet Union through subsidies. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell, those subsidies stopped. And a lot of Cubans starved in the 90s after that happened. Uh, when Chavez took over in 1999, that all changed. Uh, Cuba started receiving free oil every single day from Venezuela, then resold it on the international market. And that's how the Cuban regime made money. Interesting. So Venezuela was um, helping prop up Cuba. When did things turn south for Venezuela? Was it when, so the old, the old uh, adage about how did Rome fall gradually, then suddenly, what Venezuela was sort of under Chavez, I'm, I'm assuming the first few years uh, while he was making these changes, it wasn't uh, you know, severe economic collapse, at least for me, and you correct me if I'm wrong, what your analysis is someone who's obviously brought up there and very knowledgeable about there, the sort of, you know, we hear about the Maduro diet and we can, we can explain what, that, what that's about. Um, that seems to be a phenomenon largely of the last few years, at least to, to the extent of, of, its, of its gravity as it is today, where like there's no food in a lot of places. When did that yeah. start to happen? Was it after the um, oil lost its value in sort of mid 2000s and sort of dropped to like 10 bucks a barrel? Like what was, what, what was the, the change? Well, let, let's, so let me run about this. Uh, Chavez was lucky to enjoy that on the year he started in office, oil was actually at $10 a barrel in 1999. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, by 2006, 2007, it was at $100 a barrel. Mm-hmm. So government revenues from oil multiplied times 10, right, right? right? Approximately, you know, production changed. But uh, government revenues increased drastically. Even those increased government revenues were not enough to finance all the spending that he decided to do. Yes, much of it was corruption, of course, because the government was in charge of everything. But much of it was building apartments for people for free, giving housing for free, uh, not charging for electricity, not charging for water, not charging for gasoline in the gas station, uh, not charging uh, for food, giving food subsidized for free. um, And all of those things cost money. Mm-hmm. And it was not enough. So and, and nobody was going to give them money to pay for it, like through that, because investors didn't have confidence in, in the right. ability to pay back. Mm-hmm. So he just printed money. To, uh, he also hired uh, like a million new government workers in a country of about 25 million people. Uh, was, it really, was it really a million? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. Yes, yes. It, yeah. Um, and how? Because he created new government agencies that did absolutely nothing. Uh, my favorite government agency, uh, it's the Vice Ministry for Supreme Social Happiness. Uh, there's also the Ministry for Eco-Socialism. Mm-hmm. And there's the Ministry for the Socialist Transformation of Caracas, which is the capital city. There's a cold department, uh, cabinet level position mm-hmm. for that. Um, and they hire workers that, you know, do nothing yeah. that's really productive for the economy, but they yeah, get paid right. a salary by the taxpayers. Um, and so that costs money. And that increased inflation in Venezuela. So 
Yes, the decline was gradual because now what happened 20 years ago looks gradual because of how horrible things are today. Mm-hmm. It felt very strongly, and Americans would think it's hell even the early times of Chavez. Mm-hmm. By 2004, you couldn't find milk in the supermarkets. Really? Uh, you can find all New York Times articles that I've looked them up mm-hmm. uh, from the early 2000s of shortages in Venezuela. Now, it's not like today. Today, there's nothing, right? Mm-hmm. But things, you could already start things to, to change, things that don't happen in normal countries. Uh, crime is the also unheard story of Venezuela, really. Um, Venezuela is now one of the most dangerous countries in the world. It's not even a socialism story. Hmm. It's really Venezuela. Maybe it's the only socialist country that is also extremely dangerous. Right, right. Because um, even in the Soviet Union, I mean, well, the government would kill you, but there wasn't. Uh, but not regular crime. Part, yeah, it wasn't right. Exactly. It wasn't so much regular crime. It was politically targeted. Mm-hmm. In Venezuela, right. it's not. In Venezuela, uh, you got, there, you got the best of both worlds in Venezuela. Uh, there, there's right. a song, uh, Por Estas Calles in These Streets, that's from the 90s. Uh, and, and that now it's revived because it's so true today. It's like, it doesn't matter your color, your race, your creed, everybody gets killed, something like that. No. Um, it's Venezuela, Caracas, the city where I live, the capital, is the city with the highest murder rate on the planet. Um, it, it's over 100 people per 100,000. So that means that one out of every 1,000 1, persons mm-hmm. gets killed every year. Unbelievable. And and these are, are these based, how, how are those statistics collected? Obviously, I'm, I'm sure, because I'm wondering, could they even be higher than that? Are we like relying on the Venezuelan authorities for this or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not, not anymore. Now we no. use nonprofit organizations okay. such as the Venezuelan Observatory of Violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the main one. The UN published them for a while, but then the UN, you know, you right. know who manages the United Nations. Right, right, right. So we rely on the Venezuelan Observatory of Violence, which are people who just put their lives at risk in Venezuela to know these things mm-hmm. and, and really just go to the, the morgues and see who dies. And, and, and that's how you calculate how many people have been murdered. Um, uh, which, well, I mean, it's just tragic. Uh, so every Absolutely. year in Venezuela, approximately 20 to 30,000 people are murdered of regular homicide. And the population uh, So then you have a comparison in America mm-hmm. today, a country of 330 million people. So 11 times, 12 times more people than Venezuela, 10,000 people a year die of homicide. In Venezuela, three times as many people die of homicide, a country that is 12 times smaller. Wow. It's the equivalent if we had, say, you know, 300, 400,000 Americans die each year of mm. homicide, which is like COVID deaths of mm-hmm. homicide every single year. It's insane. It's killing the whole state of Wyoming every year proportionally. Right, right. That's, that's how big the, the problem is. Uh, and that doesn't count starvation. That doesn't count lack of medicine. Uh, that, that doesn't count, uh, you know, People escaping and dying because that's happening right now. People who escape by sea to Trinidad, to Aruba, in the border with Colombia. It, it is a country that was totally um, destroyed. And talk to us about the the hyperinflation. What's what's the inflation figures like? Do you know at this moment or roughly? Um, I think they have gone down. Right now, there are th- there are thousands percent, but that's actually a lot less than it was uh, two years ago when it reached millions. <laughs> Million percent inflation. Uh, yeah, uh, and and according to the International Monetary Fund, at least, yes. Um, but now it's a few thousands, and the reason is that the the regime has made reforms in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Now thousands percent, it's still insane. It's, it's it doesn't insane. really matter. I mean, it's just the, like the I mean, ten percent is insane, folk, right? I yeah, ten percent is insane. Yeah. So the United States, the highest inflation rate we've lived here was in the seventies, and it was thirteen percent per year, which was 
the early years of Chavez. That was the lowest inflation we ever had, actually. <laughs> so what I'm telling you that when you say, you know, well, things were not as bad during Chavez, things mm-hmm. during Chavez were horrible by the standards we had in the past. Absolutely. The thing is that things are so bad now that the, the bad in the past looks, looks great. Um, so you work hard, let's say you save $100,000 your bank account, then the next year it's worth like basically a grand of purchasing power, or maybe even a hundred bucks. Really. Right, Zero yeah. Thousands percent. Mm-hmm. But, um, but people don't save in, in Venezuelan currency. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that happened is that Venezuela is now in their paradoxical situation of having too much money in their circulation because the government uh, generated a bigger money supply, but too little cash. And I know that's like, how does that happen? Don't they just print money? So that's cash. No, they don't print. Re- when we say they print money, it's really uh, a, a rhetorical or or a, a metaphor. They don't really print money physically. Uh, the issue is that Venezuela never had a money printing machine. They had to uh, pay for the cash, bring it from Brazil. Um, and you had to pay for it in US dollars and hire a Brazilian company to print the cash for the Venezuelan government. Hmm. And... And they so, don't have their own money printers in Venezuela? No, they, these are actually very high-tech, expensive machines. Not wow, all governments so. have money printer machines. Uh, wow. So Venezuela didn't and doesn't. And so they pay a company and then they bring the cash and you have to pay that company in US dollars. The company is right. not going to accept Venezuelan bolivars, right? Right, right. <laughs> they can print them for you, but that's monopoly money. And um, so the Venezuelan regime has relied on electronic money, really. So through the banking system, mm-hmm. paying people online in their bank accounts, but then when these people get deposited, these government workers, they go to the bank, they can't withdraw their deposits in cash because there's mm-hmm. no cash. Mm-hmm. And so the shortage of cash led Venezuelans to just totally leave the Venezuelan currency. And now people are using US dollars uh, mm-hmm. to uh, pay most transactions. And does go- I'm assuming the government must try to st- um, stop that, right? Initially, they did, mm-hmm. not anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. They're trying to adapt adapt uh, because they really can't control such an extended blank market mm-hmm. uh, unless they wanted to, you know, put us in concentration camps like North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, they can't do that because Venezuelans will just escape, right? Right, right, uh, right. So in the sense, we were told in Venezuela that Venezuela would never become like Cuba, that we had oil, we were a democracy, we were not an island. And that's true. Venezuela today is not like Cuba. It's worse in economic terms than Cuba. Uh, less economic freedom, according to the Heritage Foundation. Than Cuba? Actually. Than Cuba. Less economic freedom. Oh that's my right. God. Cuba doesn't have hyperinflation, Ashton. Mm, okay. Venezuela does. Mm. And that's one of the worst things for people's uh, finances and business Absolutely. creation and stability. Um, so Venezuela is worse than Cuba, but it's better in the sense that at least you don't have to use a boat to escape. Because it's a, it's a country with a very long border with, with Brazil, with Guyana, and with Colombia. And, and so people just can live there. Um, it has oil, that's right. And within the 20 years of this regime, 22, um, we ran out of oil. We don't produce oil anymore. So Milton Friedman's um, uh, you know, uh, phrase that give the Sahara Desert to the government and you will have a shortage of sand within a few years mm-hmm. rang very true because mm-hmm. you, we gave the government control of the oil and in the country with the most oil reserves we don't have oil anymore that's unbelievable so he the Chavez Maduro regime just appointed cronies to run these companies who knew basically nothing about the industries 
ran it into the ground and now you can't even produce oil anymore. So where are you guys getting oil from? Do you know? Is it, do you guys have to rely well, on other no, places? There's really there's... no gasoline in the country. The people have to make lines of hours to mm. get gasoline. Uh, you have to import it from other countries. Um, Unbelievable. So, but, you know, enough. so people understand why that happens or why there are blackouts, because that's the other big problem. It's not mm-hmm. just shortages of food and, and, and gasoline, it's blackouts, it's uh, water uh, outages, uh, all, all of that. I suffer very much from those. So what's Maybe the, what's the uh, eco uh, sustainability socialist committee doing? They're not, not playing up windmills and solar panels. Uh, and- <laughs> You know, we actually have one of the, PDVSA, the Venezuelan state oil company. I believe it's one of the most um, uh, prone to accident oil companies in the planet. Uh, there's been so many oil spills that are not covered internationally because it's not, you know, convenient for the international left. Uh, but but it's it's disgusting. And they put there was one uh, of their Guarapiche River in uh, eastern Venezuela that it was so bad. And what the government did to clean up the river was put individuals with naked, you know, in in, in shorts mm-hmm. with barrels to pick up oil from their water oh. river. Hmm. You you know that people will die. You know they they can get chemically chemically infected from getting right. exposed to crude oil in their skin. Mm-hmm. And that quantity but for sure. That that's not how you clean up a river from an oil spill. But that's what they did. And there's pictures. This is all public information. Um, so this is not socialism. Is not good for the environment. Yeah, I thought it was. That's interesting. I, oh, that's because I the Soviet Union was great. Oh no, they weren't great for the environment either. Because that's what we're told, right? Is that capitalism is the one that's bad for environment, but socialism. Uh, seems to have a significantly worse record. Maybe it will be better after everybody's killed and there's no human beings. Right, that'd be carbon neutral, yeah. You know, that'll be carbon neutral yeah. in the long term, I guess. Uh, I guess, but that's not really the goal we have, right? Um, now, how did, how did we get blackouts? How did we get water outages? Re- it's not really just that they appointed corrupt people for, th- for these companies. It's not really the bad intentions or that they had bad management. How did they finance all their social spending? Yes, they printed money, but if they didn't want to print more, they just stopped investing in the things they had to, right? Mm-hmm. And because the government owned the oil, the electricity, and the water companies, what they did was that they stopped investing in the electric infrastructure, in the grid, stopped investing in the water pipes, stopped investing in the oil drilling maintenance. And over time, that means that it will break down. Right. Uh, so the electric grid broke down, and in 20, I believe it was last year, we had the biggest blackout we ever had in history. The whole country went without electricity no. for over a week. People died in the hospital because of right. that. Um, back in 2016, when I was in Venezuela, I sometimes didn't have water for three weeks. Three weeks. We had to collect it from the rain. Oh my we, God. Like if we were living in the 1800s or worse than the 1800s. Um, Electricity would go out every week randomly and your fridge would go bust because Mm -hmm. those uh, changes in in current destroy your electrical equipment. So they have bigger costs than just not having electricity. You actually lose your devices. Mm -hmm. Um, And today, what's what's the electricity situation like? Is it like, you know, you have a, so obviously there's, and and, uh, if you will explain this so i'm assuming there must be a significant difference between the caracas people and the rest of venezuela right they, they probably have it significantly worse even than the caracas people so what's like the um the daily life situation do you do you have running water can you take a shower if you're a mid, middle class person or the equivalent in, in a place like uh, caracas and compared to outside of caracas 
yeah, so in Krakas, you are much better than in the rest of the country. And the logical reason is that all the cronies of the government live in right. Caracas. So, of course, they want to keep things in Caracas better, also decrease the chances of a revolt um, and those things, right? Um, in the rest of the country, it's extremely precarious. Uh, it is actually like going back to the 19th century, uh, where there are complete towns that have no electricity at all. But it's not that they have blackouts. They just don't have electricity and they just don't have water. Uh, and they have to collect it from the rain and they have to go to a well and pick it up and bring it up in buckets, uh, like in Africa. Uh, and that's what happened to Venezuela, a country that was rich, it became a, a wasteland. Um, even the second largest city of Venezuela, Maracaibo, which was an oil town in the past mm -hmm. uh, with over a million people, um, it, it is totally destroyed. The, the lack of electricity is also very bad there because it's a very hot city. Mm -hmm. that relied on having AC everywhere on all the time uh, because it's in the, in, you know, 100 degrees Fahrenheit every day. Right. Um, Caracas doesn't have that problem because we're much higher. Uh, the weather is fantastic. I really miss that part of uh, Caracas, actually. Uh, it's always in the 60s, 70s, 80s, year round. And um, the rest of the country is not. And, and so it's, uh, it's very precarious. In Caracas, if you're in a middle-class family, you know, middle-class by Venezuelan standards, which is mm -hmm. really poor by American standards, right. yes, you will have water to, to shower and electricity most of the time, uh, but it's really unpredictable when you will not. Hmm. So even there, you run into problems with, with daily life. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. No, and, and the crime part, everybody right, right. suffers the crime part. Um, you know, there the if you have internet, which now fewer and fewer people do, it's extremely slow internet. Uh, it, it it is really primitive internet connections that people have. Uh, they have very little access to international information now, so people just try to use social media to get informed. Um, uh, you can't yeah. you can't even watch a Netflix movie, huh? You, I mean, you, yeah, right, because the internet yeah. is so slow that it's right. gonna be very difficult. So even if you could, if you had the money. Uh, uh, and somebody else abroad to help you, uh, the internet is very slow. Right. I, I couldn't even imagine, I mean, um, how someone would try to start a business there when the cost of your goods are so unpredictable. So, if, you know, if it's going to cost this much, um, you know, $1,000 this month for the goods you need to to have a business, then next month it could be 5000 Next Next month after that, it would be 20000 So that pretty much disincentivizes anybody from engaging in long-term activities, right? Well, now what people do is that they just actually just do it in U.S. dollars, right? Not, okay. so not in bolivars. So if you just use U.S. dollars and you mm -hmm. charge your customers in U.S. dollars and you pay your workers in U.S. dollars, it can work. Okay. Um, there, there's still the problem of, you know, what do you do if you don't have reliable electricity or water? What do mm -hmm. you do if you don't have good internet connection? Mm -hmm. What do you do if the roads are destroyed because there's been no investment in roads in 22 years? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do if somebody just comes and takes everything you own or if the government wants to take over your business or, or if they come and want to impose price controls on the goods you sell uh, or, or the government official who comes and, bribe and, and wants a bribe from you? Um, or if you need to import something and you need to interact with the government and ask for permission to bring something from abroad. Uh, it's insane. Do you see any parallels between what the social democratic wing of politics wants to do here versus what Chavez and you know Maduro, et cetera, ran on there? Uh, because we're always promised that what they want is Denmark or Norway, which is a you know Norway is a petro state as well, but they made very different choices um, and smart choices. And you know Sweden, which you know has a, has 
much more of a uh, actually in law boys are more capitalist than us. I think they even have a cor- lower corporate tax rates. Uh, you know, they uh, more free trade, um, less occupational licenses. Um, do you do you buy that? The Bernie Sanders in the world, who, by the way, used to and uh, it'll no more. They used to praise uh, Maduro and people like Chavez, but now they're they're saying they want the Nordic model. What's yeah. your take on that? <laughs> well, the Nordic model. I, I wish that they proposed the Nordic model because that would be a really good discussion to have over what works there and what doesn't. That would be a really meaningful and interesting debate. Uh, but it is not really the debate we're having. Uh, they are not proposing having a lower corporate tax or, or, or eliminating regulations uh, to, or, or, in, or imposing a sales tax on everybody to finance the welfare state they want. No, they want to take everything from the rich and think that there's enough money there to, all, to pay all the things they want and increase taxes on businesses, which is not what happens in all these supposedly social democratic countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, they, they want what happens in Venezuela. You know what happened uh, yesterday, Ashton, or, or, or about, was this week? I'm sure I believe it was yesterday. That the House and, and Congress voted for an act called the Renacer Act, which imposed sanctions on Nicaragua's uh, socialist regime. Forty Democrats voted against the Renacer Act. Forty. The act passed because between approximately, you know, 200 Democrats and 200 Republicans, you know, and, and 40 Democrats against it, it, it passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are 40 Democrats who aren't even willing to pass a simple act that sanctions individual members of a totalitarian socialist state. If they aren't even willing to do that, imagine the things they support in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, Biden, by the way, did not sign the Renaissance Act into law. Um, so let's see if he even signs it. If he doesn't, who knows? Hopefully Congress will override him. But we have a president that isn't even willing to sign sanctions on individuals who kill people and are part of a socialist regime, right? Um, so I, I do think that there are parallels and I, and I think that it is very worrisome. Um, it is worrisome because not all Americans know about it because I right. know that if Americans knew what I'm just telling you, they would be outraged, right? Uh, if Americans knew the policies that are actually implemented in Denmark, in Norway, in Sweden, they would say, okay, maybe that's not that bad, but that's certainly not what Bernie Sanders is proposing. Right. So what we need to do is make sure that more Americans know what's going on, because I know that they will make the right choice. Right, and uh, I think it's also, also worth mentioning, it's almost, they, they point to these, um, like the Scandinavian countries, and they promise us the goodies that are from the Scandinavian countries, but not any of the policies that allowed those goodies to happen. It's like, it's like saying, you know, oh, we can have the lifestyle of, of Richard Branson if we just spend money like Richard Branson. It's like, no, you have to do the things that took Richard Branson to become this multi-billionaire. Then you can enjoy that, right? So it's almost like they want the results without any of the things led to it. And it's also worth mentioning, you know, like try getting into Norway as an illegal alien, right? I mean, they're they're taking the most high skilled people uh, from from all over the world. I think even you know I, I have a uh, knowledge about this because my my family's from Iran originally, and you know you're 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 getting in there if you're like a math major or you know have some sort of PhD or something like that. They're not they're very particular about who the kinds of people they lend their country engineers people of that nature, and that's what allows you know the wealth to be generated in order to pay for this other stuff. Um, well, I mean, maybe. I mean, Sweden did let in incredible numbers uh, of refugees. That's a recent thing, recently. right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, they and, still have a very skill-based system, though, more so yes, than us. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and so does Denmark and mm-hmm. so does Norway. They, I mean, they admit actually more immigrants legally as person of their population than the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is that, uh, you know, they don't have illegal migration. That's a different issue. Uh, but, 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 you know, these countries finance the programs that they promise. And you don't, we simply do not have enough money taken away from the rich to pay for all these programs. There's just, you know, Elon Musk said it, you know, if you, right. even if you took away all my, all my wealth, mm-hmm. it's not going to be enough to do anything about it. Right. And, and it's not just his wealth, it's every billionaire's wealth. It's not Absolutely. enough. Mm-hmm. Um, these countries don't take wealth from the billionaires. In fact, America has a more progressive tax system than any European country right now. Mm-hmm. Why? Because half of this country does not pay income taxes. Right. That, that's not the case mm-hmm. in Norway. That's not the case in Sweden. Everybody pays income tax. And everybody also pays sales tax, which is over 20% in all of those countries and in most European countries too. We don't have a national sales tax in this country. We have state sales taxes around 7%. Are people, do you think Americans are willing to pay 13 percentage points more? Right. And I, for I think with everything uh, they buy, mm-hmm. they are not. Yeah, I, they don't, are not. I don't think so. The, the Scandinavian countries also, you're looking at um, people who make like, say, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars a year are paying like 40 to 50% of their income in tax total, right? And as you as you elucidated, yeah. the uh, the United States, half the country doesn't even pay federal income tax. So that's, that's a significant difference. And with with respect to the, the billionaires, you know, the whole tax billionaires thing, obviously, it's, it's flawed in so many reasons. A, even if you confiscate all the wealth, wouldn't happen. B, they don't even have their wealth in, in something like cash. Right? Elon Musk's uh, $300 billion net worth, like 90% of it is uh, in stocks of SpaceX and Tesla. So then what's he going to do? He's going to sell you know, his 50% share. What's that going to do to the, all the shareholders who are investing in them, all the pension plans that have invested in them? See, if he sells 50% of his uh, share in uh, you know, Tesla, uh, what's, what's that going to do to the stock? Right? Like, that's, of course, it'll probably go down 60 or 70%, right? Because everyone will be like, why is he selling all this right now? Um, so, and obviously creates extreme volatility in all the capital markets. And then C, these are the most mobile people in the world who hire the best tax accountants and tax lawyers and, uh, you know, good luck trying to get their money. And, you know, that is the economic argument of why their policies don't work. Um, but we have to, to counter that. We need to make the economic argument of why our policies will work. And we also need to make a moral argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I've heard from so many people on the left politicians and average folks that they don't think billionaires should exist. They actually think billionaires shouldn't exist, even if they make their wealth legitimately. So somebody like Elon Musk or like Jeff Bezos, you know, one thing is if you're corrupt, of course, I don't think you should have any penny, but that doesn't mean if you're a billionaire or a thousand dollars, if you steal money, you shouldn't have that money. Um, But if you make a new product and we pay you for that product voluntarily, you made something legitimately and you created value for me. And that's why I bought it. Bill Gates, everybody hates Bill Gates now because of his politics, whatever. But Bill Gates created Microsoft. Everybody here is using Microsoft. We love it. We use it because it's a good product. That's legitimate wealth. Now, you might not like what he does later with his wealth. That's a different issue. But that's, that's legitimate. And to say that you don't think that these people should be able to make that money because they don't need it, the truth is that nobody needs what we have. We just need food and a place to sleep. And if your argument is going to be that, you know, nobody needs that much money, well, you don't need a house. 
We can all live like, like we did, you know, 30,000 years ago and just live and hunt. You know, you don't need a house, you don't need electricity, you don't need internet. Those are not basic necessities either. Um, so, uh, you know, that we can take this argument to the extreme. I wanna live in a society where everybody has a shot at being rich, where everybody can be rich. I want a society where everybody can work hard, everybody has the opportunity to succeed. Everybody shouldn't have guaranteed success, you know, we need effort. Um, but, but that's the society I want to live in. I don't want to live in a society where the government tells you what to do, how much money you can make. I want to help the poor, but I don't want to punish the rich, but for the sake of punishing them. And I feel like that's where a lot of these policies and that's where socialism comes from. It comes from envy. That's right. where the, the resentment that Chavez sowed mm -hmm. came from. You know, oh, you know, all these people have all this money. We need to redistribute it because they have too much money. And it's the same thing with Bernie Sanders here. Mm -hmm. And they're appealing to a natural human sentiment, which is envy, which is right. a capital Ooh. sin too, mm -hmm. you know? It, it is a bad, it, it is our bad instincts, but it is, but they're human. And we need to fight that. And we fight that in education, we fight that at home. Uh, and that's how we change this country for the better. It's, it's like they appeal to the, the most dark sense of who we are as humans. It's something that, um, you know, not everyone has it, but people have it at certain times at varying extents. And really just drumming up that envy can lead to just such, as we see, calamitous consequences. And it's also worth noting that the very, you know, the, the Hugo Chavez's of the world, uh, the Fidel Castro's of the world, what happens when they take all the rich people's stuff? Well, they, they spare no expense for themselves. They live like kings, right? Fidel Castro's grandson, I think, is living in Spain and posting pictures on Instagram on like boats and living this luxurious lifestyle, as is, I believe, Hugo Chavez's daughter, right? She was uh, also lives yeah. in Europe, has this lavish lifestyle. So it's they're fine with wealth as long as it's for them, but not for the other people. It, it is disgusting. In Venezuela, we call this political elite class the enchufados, which means they're plugged in. Mm -hmm. uh, because they're plugged into the regime's resources and and they have incredible parties even in venezuela mm -hmm. as everybody is starving and uh, it's just disgusting and they live abroad many of them many venezuelans have been able to find some of these people in the united states and they chase them and they mm -hmm. record them and honestly they deserve all the shame they deserve everything they deserve to be jailed in this country really some people are like we should deport and they shouldn't be allowed here no no no, no. welcome them all and put them all in jail straight mm -hmm. to jail that's where they need to be because if you leave them out they're gonna go to some other country and enjoy their good life there no they need to be here and in jail um and we're not doing anything about it and, and that allows those regimes also to survive right right if absolutely all, why do they stay in power why does the maduro regime stay in power because they want to make money because they are evil people and and and, and they don't care about the human consequences of their actions so we need to do whatever we can to take away that incentive of them of staying in power. And one of the ways of taking that incentive out is you can't do really anything with the money that you steal. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's, you know, jailing them, uh, restricting them, sanctioning them. Right, and I'm, I'm particularly familiar with this in the Iranian context where um, same exact thing. So it's all the plugged in people, they have the Maseratis and Ferraris and then their kids get sent to Europe not the United States so much, but mostly Europe, and they get to uh, enjoy all the wealth that their parents confiscated from the rest of the country. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's it's the most sick thing in the world. Um, I'll ask you another question about Venezuela, then I want to bring it back to your 
solutions and what you think that America should be doing differently with some of the biggest things from an economic perspective. Guaido, what's what's the um, what's your what's your thoughts on him? Is it there will be some people like uh, who would say, well, we shouldn't be supporting him. Like, who is he to to say that he has he represents democracy in that country? Uh, what's what's your take on on Guaido? I, I guess we don't hear about him any, anymore. First of all, like, why is that? And what's your opinion about that? Yeah. So so for the people who don't know, Guaido uh, was a part of the Venezuelan National Assembly. Uh, he was elected the president of the National Assembly. And back in 2015, he was a member of the nominally opposition parties. Um, and, you know, when Maduro rigged the election again, because this is not the first time the election is rigged uh, in Venezuela, uh, they, the National Assembly just said, you know, according to the Constitution, the president of the National Assembly is the legitimate president of the country until new elections are uh, held. Okay. And that's how, that's the legal justification for um, his power. I, I don't care that much about the legal justification because I think that the constitution of Venezuela itself is not legal in the first place uh, because it came out of uh, a sham Supreme Court by Chavez. Um, so I think that we don't have rule of law in Venezuela since 22 years ago, but that's a different discussion that many people are not even willing to have. Um, but, you know, he uh, was recognized by the rest of the world. And I think that that was a good move initially because he did have popular support then, right? When even though nobody knew him at the time, people started getting to know him in the moment that he stepped up and said that, you know, we are going to take over the country back and, and expel the Maduro regime. Because that's what everybody in Venezuela wants, right? That's what 90% of the population wants. Um, the, the, this is something important. Venezuelans don't want this regime to stay in power. Uh, the, there's no polling that supports that. Uh, Venezuelans have protested against Chavez and then Maduro for decades. People have been killed. This is a regime that, uh, based on our conversation that I already told you, does not respect human rights. Um, there's no freedom of speech like, like we have here. It's totally different. And so Venezuelans don't want them in power. The question is how to get them out of power. And the reality is that Guaido, uh, even though he gave us hope at the start, did nothing really to overthrow the regime as he should have. Uh, he thinks, like the rest of the opposition has thought for 20 years, that with peaceful sit-ins, with little letters that you write, uh, with, with YouTube videos, with um, you know, speeches, you can overthrow a totalitarian regime that will kill you, right? Because they have all the guns uh, and Venezuelans don't. Mm -hmm. And that's not what it happens. In fact, the Venezuelan regime is so smart that they're not even they're not even like the North Koreans where you know if you say something they'll haunt you you know say anything you want complain anything you want we'll keep making money of drug trafficking we're still in power you keep crying leave the country or stay it's your problem and that's what the Venezuelan regime's approach has been um, they have imprisoned a lot of people then they release him then they imprison them again we had a chance with Guaido to have established a legal environment for him to have requested help from other countries to actually free our country. But he didn't even want to. He didn't even uh, want to discuss the possibility of using force, of a, of a forceful rebellion. But you know what? The United States did not become an independent country by signing a letter and just leaving it like that to King George. Right. Right? There, there was the American Revolution mm -hmm. when King George refused. And, and, and that involved force and that involves deaths. But you know what? More people are going to die if we don't do anything mm -hmm. because they're already dying. So, so um, 
I'm afraid that the Venezuelan opposition does not have what it takes. And that's why we don't hear any more from them. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So that's a very dark situation then. Uh, if, you know, I, th- I think the, much of the world is facing people, uh, where it's facing situations where you don't have bold, courageous people, um, you know, and, and those people have always been rare to begin with. But, uh, you know, as, as you said, it's the people in power in Venezuela and some of these other countries. Um, it's hard to find the, the George Washington. It's hard to find that person's really going to risk everything and has the sort of moral gravitas to do it. Um, so that's, that's a tough one. What do you think about the, in the United States, we're flirting with uh, social programs all the time these days, expansion of them. What do you think are the biggest problems in the United States uh, that, particularly from an economic perspective, that you think need to be addressed? Um, do you have any solutions in mind? What, what, what would be the couple of top things on your sort of agenda list that you'd like to see? Yeah. Um, well, one of those things is related to entitlements and a, a total reform of the entitled entitlement and welfare system of this country in a way that makes sense. Because the problem is that Congress has passed program on top of program on top of program on top of reform, but now the whole system doesn't make sense. And that's the same thing with, uh, with most areas of the law, really. And, and, and so what happens is that we have so many duplicative programs. Uh, we have Medicare, we have Medicaid, we had Obamacare, we have CHIP, uh, we have uh, subsidies for low-income housing, we have electricity subsidies, we have Social Security, uh, we, we have renters programs, we have uh, TAMF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, so many programs that really, I think, should be consolidated and into one that makes sense. Because our current entitlement state is anti-work, which is a problem, mm-hmm. and it's anti-family, too, because there's so many uh, biases in the tax and, and entitlement um, eligibility system that makes it harder to get married and have children. And, and, and so it introduces many um, behavioral biases that not just towards bad behaviors, um, food stamps too. So ideally I would like to see all the health related programs like Medicare, like Medicaid, like CHIP and Obamacare eliminated and combined into mm-hmm. one program that makes sense and only helps the poor. Right now, Medicare, millionaires are eligible for Medicare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, CHIP is only for children, but, you know, or, 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 and uh, Obamacare is for the middle class. Uh, why do we need to have all of this? Why not have just a regular health voucher that is related to income and, and that subsidizes good private insurance purchase of your choice um, in, an, in a competitive market? Mm-hmm. That's what I would do. Free market solution. We know from research that private insurance is actually much better than Medicare and Medicaid because those are actually government insurance. Because those insurers pay hospitals lower rates and doctors, so doctors don't want to take you if you're in those programs. If you just gave people money to buy insurance, they will be much better off. And we would eliminate this wasteful bureaucracy of thousands of employees. I'm not advocating for an elimination of the welfare state. I'm not advocating even for reducing benefits. I'm advocating for targeting them for who needs them the most. And, and having a program that makes sense and gives benefits to, the, to people who actually need them. Uh, and same with all the other programs, right? They just need to be consolidated into something that makes sense and make fiscally sustainable. Right now, they're increasing very fast and they're not being financed enough. Uh, and that's the problem, right? Um, the, the second economic thing that needs to change, I think, uh, is related to um, uh, 
housing and, and occupational licensing. Really, it's all this. Mm -hmm. It's really red tape. The the second problem. Um, we one of the main reasons that people's salaries are not increasing as fast as they should be is because housing, just like healthcare, with the other right. problem that I mentioned at the mm -hmm. beginning, is growing too fast. The cost, um, and, and we need to change that. And we can only change that if we increase the supply of, of, of housing. And to do that, we need to eliminate all these laws that allow politicians to block private development of housing in, uh, in a city. You are in LA, you know this. Mm -hmm. LA is mostly single family homes. LA should look like Manhattan. LA should look like Manhattan. It should be 10, 10 you know, story high buildings everywhere. Uh, I'm not saying destroy the suburbs. I'm saying that city centers in San Francisco, in LA, in San Diego, and this is especially a problem in California, by the way, uh, but, but it's also everywhere else, need to have tall buildings so that there's more housing in the same amount of land and more, more housing for the same population will mean lower prices. Um, and, and so it's the same with licenses, right? We have licenses for professions that don't need them especially blue collar professions. You, you don't people. think there should be a license to shampoo hair? So no. You need a bunch of or in DC, you need a license to be an interior designer. You know, I say people, God forbid somebody paint your wall orange, right? That, that's going to be a disaster. Right, right, right. Interior, wow, yeah, interior design license. That's right. Well, yeah. So the, these things just basically help, uh, hurt, uh, particularly poor working class people or people who are striving up to achieve more socioeconomic status because this is an extra layer that they have to go through just to do simple things. Right. And, and the third and last thing I think is changing this country is the immigration system. Uh, I, I think that America has the potential to really profit incredibly from the immigration system, and we're really wasting it uh, and giving it all to other countries for real. Uh, and when I say that, you know, nobody really frames the immigration problem this way. Everybody frames it as we're getting all these illegals. You know, the truth is that the illegal population has been stable for the last 10 years and actually gone down slightly. Now we have a border surge probably increased uh, this year, but, but the truth is that all the estimates, whether it's 20 million or 10 million, that number has not really changed over the last 10 years. Uh, it, it's actually gone down slightly because many illegal immigrants have died. Many illegal immigrants leave and have gone back to Mexico especially. And very few Mexicans are immigrating illegally. It's mostly from Central America. Right. Um, and we have deported a lot of people. Uh, and so the illegal immigrant population is not really a problem. Uh, the problem is that we don't have a system that allows high-skilled people to come to this country. Um, Canada, Canada, a country that has 10 times fewer people than, than the United States, admits more high-skilled immigrants in absolute numbers than the United States. Two-thirds of all green cards in this country are given to people based on their family ties. And that's okay. Of course, you need, if you're married to an American, you should be able to become an American or, or if you, uh, you know, are the child. But if you're not allowing a company to bring an executive, if you're, if you're, okay, let me give you the best example. If you're a Nobel Prize winner from India, you will not get a green card for the next 10 years if you apply today. Unbelievable. A Nobel, a Nobel Prize winner, an EB1, because that's the wait time right now for the EB1s. That's the employment-based uh, number one priority. Um, if you're in the EB2 category, which is still, you need an advanced degree, at least a master's education, and then you need to prove exceptional ability sponsored by a company, pay tens of thousands of dollars. That category, if you are from, from one of the waitlisted countries, mm -hmm. you will never get it. 
100 years is for India right now. Unbelievable. Um, we, we only allow 140,000 people with skills to come to this hmm. country every year. And this is a country with 330 million. Canada needs more than 140,000. Um, it is really a problem, and it's actually making companies leave the United States mm -hmm. and open shop in Toronto and open shop in Australia and open shop in the United Kingdom where they can bring their high-skilled um, individuals and actually work from there. Yeah, I, I think um, I agree mostly with you on the immigration point. It's one area where I sort of depart from the Tucker Carlson's of the world because we of course, we want the smartest people here. That's the whole point, you know, because they build the companies, they build the wealth. Uh, I think some of the more restrictionist immigration types, to to be fair to them, I understand, you know, when the well is kind of poisoned by seeing millions of illegals come in, um, it's hard then to turn around and tell the American people, oh, yeah, yeah, but we want to expand immigration, even if it's for the high-skilled people. I think if you could show the American people, we control our borders, we control who, who comes into this country, and now we're going to expand the high-skilled people that get to come into this country. We want all the top people from uh, India and all sorts of places, provided you know they're of good moral character, here and build companies here and contribute here. And you know, I mean, what's what's the uh, number of uh, businesses, billion-dollar businesses and multi-hundred-million-dollar businesses started by immigrants or children immigrants? It's like an astronomical rate. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it is most most of the Forbes five hundred. Right. So we want every single. Why should Canada get those people? Or Australia? Why should we lose out to them? So I think that's absolutely true. We need more high school and grants. We need skill based system. Um, and but we also need to show people. I think as as a sign of good faith, like we're controlling comes in here. You know, like yeah, we're not going to bring. And, and you know, I, I agree. But a lot of people miss that the legal system is intertwined with the legal immigration problem as well. Not the high-skilled visas, because mm -hmm. it's not usually high-skilled people who cross the border illegally, but it, it is the, the agricultural visa programs and, and the uh, temporary worker programs. Uh, there, there's actually many studies on this. There's a really good one about how visa policies affect in, uh, unauthorized migration in the United States. And it shows that as we restrict temporary work visas for agricultural and, um, you know, uh, basically non-college uh, workers who come mm -hmm. from Central America specifically, more people immigrate illegally, right? Because imagine if you live in Central America today and you know that you will not have a chance to come legally to the United States. You have nothing to lose by coming and crossing the border. Will you get deported at some point? Okay, you will get deported. Yeah. You will come back again. Come back, right, you know right. how many illegal immigrants come back three mm -hmm. times, four right. times, and five times? If they had had the legal chance at some point to come here legally, not only they would have taken a visa, gone back to their countries and spent less time in the United States, they would have paid taxes in full, they would have been better and criminals would not be able to come to this country and nobody would be paying the drug cartels to cross the border to the United States and, and giving money to criminals. Mm -hmm. It would be very different. There would be a lot less human rights violations uh, and America would profit from that and control the border. Um, but a lot of people don't want to expand even those programs. Um, and, and it puzzles me because it would actually reduce total migration. What do you make about the automation argument, though, that especially with these low-skilled jobs, they're going to be the first ones automated? And so should we even um, be bringing in many of the low-skilled agricultural workers if you know, automation is going to take place, particularly in, in that industry, and become manifest within, yeah. let's say, a decade or so? Yeah, you should bring them on a temporary basis, not to give them a green card. 
but you should, I, I'm not saying that they should get a green card. I'm saying that they should get a, a temporary work visa where they can go back and, and come back, you know, and, and then that visa will end. Um, now you, you're saying, you know, maybe they're, you know, then those jobs will be automated, right? They won't have jobs. Then no, no, if they, if their employers won't need them, they won't sponsor them for visas. So they won't come back. Will they cross illegally? Yes, if there are actually jobs, but if your argument is true that they won't have jobs, they won't even have a reason to come here illegally either. So, so that will solve the problem. But as long as that's not the situation, which certainly it is not now, we should do this to control the border. This is to control the border. This is for nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to reduce human trafficking and to reduce criminals, because it is among the hundreds of thousands of regular folks who try to cross illegally that criminals sneak in. Mm-hmm. If you had the opportunity to bring many of those regular folks and deter them, uh, the, the others from coming because they have a legal chance in the future, the criminals would be the only ones trying to cross illegally the border. And they will be easily ca- caught by the border patrol. You know how much we spend on border uh, control nowadays? 10 times more than we did 10 years ago. We're spending billions of dollars a year in border control in a problem that will never be solved because not even most illegal immigrants come through the southern border. They overstay tourism. Right, visas. they overstay their visas, right. Um, it's ridiculous. Even if we had a border like North Korea, which we will never have because we respect human rights. Yeah, we're we not going to have landmines, yeah. We, we wouldn't even control yeah. half of the illegal immigration flow. Mm-hmm. So to think that border security is what's going to solve this problem is to not understand the, 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 the immigration system. We have to give temporary work visa opportunities at least to some people, more, many more than we do nowadays, or otherwise we will keep having this conversation forever. Mm-hmm. We, still have to, no, we still have to protect the border though as well, right? I mean, yeah, that's, that's of course problem. we do. I'm, I'm just saying it would get mm-hmm. much easier if we had mm-hmm. this. In fact, we, we mm-hmm. did in the past. In the 1950s, we had the Bracero program that allowed Mexicans to come here and work temporarily. We had almost no illegal border crossings through the Bracero program. The border was secure during the 50s and 60s because of the Bracero program. And what was the problem? The Bracero program got eliminated and then border crossings shot up um, and there's actually a lot of studies about the H-2 visa, which is the equivalent of the Bracero nowadays, uh, that there's two H-2A and H-2B that is for agricultural and non-agricultural uh, programs, but those are very limited. It's just a few tens of thousands per year. Uh, and then these people go back and they're usually good workers, but um, if, if we limit it to just those few, we're still gonna get the illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. So you think that if we, we have the temporary work program. They're going to come here. They're going to sort of be incentivized to abide by the limits of their visa, and because they're going to be paid openly. Um, and uh, you know, if, if they buy, if they overstay, then they're obviously lose out on economic opportunities. So you think they're going to abide by the temporary visa, go back and forth? Well, we know from the from those programs that they mm-hmm. do abide by the the overstay rate of H two visas is nearly zero. Hmm. Uh, that all the overstayers really are tourist visas. They're I not see. really, they're not students, they're not workers because the workers want to stay on their visa. Right, it is right. a huge benefit to, to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get paid more. You, you know how horrible it is to work as an illegal immigrant? You get paid less, you get exploited mm-hmm. horribly. I've met right. people who have who have uh, been exploited as illegal immigrants. And let me tell you, it is a horrible experience. Right. Nobody wants to be illegal in this country. Yeah, I mean the criminals, right? But right, those right. are really the minority. Yeah, yeah. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, with with if they come in through a, a sort of legal situation, they have something to lose, right? So, if um, you know, if it's a whatever their wages here, it's significantly better than it is from where they're from, uh, and so they're going to want to keep that going. That's an interesting point. I never thought about it. Uh, la- last thing, what do you you come from a, a country where the the shit hit the fan pretty hard? Uh, what what are you most hopeful about in both the United States and and around the world? Do you see any what's your sign of optimism for increasing of freedom and prosperity, particularly here, but maybe even in your home country? Yeah, I think that um, that there are a lot of people working on really good technological innovations that are going to help us in the future, and and I think that we I, I'm optimistic we will have a future um, positive economic situation in this country, uh, despite you know, the, the left and, and, the, and despite everything else, uh, as the world has become more globalized, uh, corporations will be able to innovate somewhere else and bring those innovations here. And, and that will really help us because the root of why these socialist terrible governments get elected is the lack of prosperity. And if we manage to keep ourselves prosperous, that, that won't even be a problem in the first place. Uh, and, and so I'm optimistic for that. Um, for Venezuela, look, um, Obviously, it's a horrible situation, and and it's also you know for America, uh, it's it's for every country that has suffered uh, anything. But we learn from these things. I wouldn't think the way I think if I hadn't lived through what Venezuela was, and and I think that that's what also made America special, right? Uh, Americans didn't become uh, a freedom-loving people because. Uh, they were born that way, uh, but rather because everybody comes from different places that experienced different things. At the beginning of the founding, it was because of the oppression of England. Uh, later, it was all the immigrants who were fleeing these oppressive governments. Uh, and I'm, I'm very optimistic over the future of the world because I think that we are hum- we as humans are social creatures and learn from these things. Um, and we have suffered a lot in recent history from different governments. And I think that people are more wary than ever from authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. I, and worth mentioning, too, by the way, that the people who are often, this doesn't get talked about enough, but the people who are often the most proud of America and the ones who take it least for granted are immigrants or first-generation Americans come from immigrant families because they know how it was like. And, and we, we see this with, you know, your New York City, uh, you know, the trust fund socialists, right? Who were like multi-generation American white kids who think that, uh, you know, who fall for the things like Hugo Chavez talks about, right? Who think that, oh, you know, it's just America's the problem all around the world. And if we just stop sanctions on them, then, you know, we're holding all these places <laughs> down, and, right? And, and it's like people like you, it's people like my mother, it's people like, uh, you know, immigrants who come from bad circumstances who who can see these warning signs say no no no. that leads to disaster every single place is tried this thing we have right here is unique in world history uh it's even rare today by today's standards very rare and don't mess it up exactly you know uh immigrants are the most patriotic uh in the united states than the native americans um and, and it is so it is because this is a great country, right? And that's why people come here. Uh, there's a really good poll. It's, um, it's a social study that's done every year, a panel. So it's the same people over time. Um, and it shows that even it is actually immigrants who say 
that over over 50% of immigrants say that the rest of the world should look more like America. Mm. And it's actually very few people born here who say that, mm. uh, that you know, and it is because immigrants know how the rest of the world looks like, and they know how America looks like, and it's true. Um, and, and so imagine the left, that's why this is so, this is such a breeding ground in immigrant communities for the Republican party. Um, the left is telling Americans that America is a evil country that the, you know we need to bow ourselves to the rest of the world in the world stage and apologize uh, and that's what Biden is doing immigrants don't think that at all immigrants think that the rest of the world should apologize to America for what they did to all the people who had to escape their countries you don't see Americans escaping America the only people who need to apologize are the people who made their citizens flee their homelands uh, and so uh, that's why the Republican Party is doing so much better with immigrant communities now, with, with Asians, with, with Hispanics, because many of them are immigrants themselves. Absolutely. And so uh, I'm very confident about the future of America because of that. Absolutely. And you know, what, what percentage of the uh, immigrant population do you think is in favor of defund the police? Right. You know. <laughs> right. So, you know, the, right. All, all the polls that came from Virginia after this election, it showed that John King won Hispanic voters mm-hmm. in Virginia. If you can win Hispanic voters in Virginia, there are not even Cuban or Venezuelan. They're right, Salvadorian right. and Central American. Imagine what you can do in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's something to be hopeful about, I think. Uh, Daniel DiMartino, amazing conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ashton. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast. And give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.